Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is about to step through at long last that gate of purgatory. Well, we're going to at least let the angel do what he needs to do on the threshold, and then we will step through it in the next episode of this podcast. We're at Purgatorio, Canto 9, lines 106 through 129. We have come all the way up the steep and at times difficult slopes of lower purgatory, as it is now called ante-purgatory, that is, before purgatory proper. We have seen all sorts of souls, those who died violently, those who were lazy, those who were excommunicated. Apparently, the church doesn't have the final say on a soul. We've seen rulers who paid more attention to their political whims and political strategies than to their souls. So much has already happened, and now we stand with this angel and the three steps up to the threshold of the gate. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. We're going to look at this passage in many different ways, but first off, let's just read it. Even with my best intentions, my good leader pulled me up these three steps and said, Call out to the angel in all humility to undo the door's bolt. I devoutly abased myself at the angel's holy feet. First I struck my chest three times, then I called out for mercy and asked to be let inside. The angel traced seven P's on my forehead with the tip of his sword and said, Make sure you wash yourself once you're inside of these wounds. Ashes or dirt dug up dry would be the color of his clothes. He took out two keys from under them. One was made of gold and the other of silver. First with the white, then with the yellow, he touched the door so that I found my contentment. Whenever one of these keys doesn't do the trick, doesn't turn inside of the lock, this walkway won't open up. He said to us, one key is more precious, but the other needs a lot more art and ingenuity before it'll unfasten the lock, because it's only this one that ultimately disentangles the knot. I got these from Peter, who told me to err in favor of opening up rather than keeping the thing closed, if only a person should fall down at my feet. Told you the angel had much to do. He's got to carve the letter P seven times into Dante's forehead, and he's got to open the door so that they can finally enter. There's some allegorical strangeness in this passage, and I want to highlight that. I also want to talk to you a little bit about some difficulty in the translation and in the interpretation here. A little bit of translation, more about interpretation. We want to talk about writing on the forehead and the long biblical tradition of that. And finally, we want to end up with this idea that it is better to err in favor of opening rather than keeping the thing closed. Let's get to it. First off, I just want to go back to the idea of how beautiful everything is. Remember those steps? White, deep purple, red, diamonds perhaps that the angel is sitting on and now the yellow and white key, the gold and silver key and in the midst of all of this very vibrant color we have this 
ashy, dirty color of the angel's robes. Usually this is thought of as to be a signal of repentance. That is ashes as in uh, marking your forehead with ashes, let's say on Ash Wednesday, uh, you know, feeling ultimately sorrow, going out and sitting in the ashes or the dirt to express your sorrow. There's a long biblical tradition for that. Why the angel would be clothed in ashes is a little more difficult to figure out. Perhaps Dante's clothes suddenly turn this color, or that suddenly the landscape turns this color. Even so, we could say it's something about Dante's repentance. Why an angel would need to be dressed up in the rags and dust of repentance is curious. Is that a showpiece, a performative piece for the pilgrims, all of them coming through this gate? Ultimately, we would have to say that Balak was getting through this gate and Manfred's getting through this gate. And well, here's a contentious sentence, but we'll say it. Maybe Cato is getting through this gate, too. Is this a performative show for them? Or is there something else going on here? Or has Dante gotten the directionality of the symbolism? What, dare I say this? Wrong. Oh, I know. Don't kill me for saying that. But it is a question. Why is the angel dressed in these sackcloth and ashes clothes? I don't have a formal answer to it other than to point it out to you. And otherwise, I want to go back to the start of the passage. Even with my best intentions, the passage begins, my good leader pulled me up the three steps and said, call out to him or the angel in all humility to undo the door's Let me just first say that that opening phrase, even with my best intentions, that opening prepositional phrase, is difficult to translate. It's difficult whether that uh, phrase lies with the pilgrim, the pilgrim's best wishes, or whether it lies with Virgil. Singleton definitely puts it in the lap of the pilgrim, and I have followed his lead in this translation. You should know that there is is a bit of justification for being able to say, my good leader with the best of intentions pulled me up these three steps. And therefore, the best intentions, the best volitionality, the best will is lying with Virgil. Do I think it's unclear on purpose? No. Do I think actually we're looking back at 700 years of medieval Florentine and we're trying to translate something where grammar rules are not the same as ours? Yes. I've left it that the intentions are the pilgrims, not Virgil's, but in any event, no matter where we leave it, Virgil is the one who pulls Dante up these steps. Remember last time I made this big deal about you have to get up with the steps on your own and there's no priest there to absolve you? The whole time I was saying that in the last episode of the podcast, I was laughing to myself thinking, well, <laughs> actually it's Virgil who pulls our pilgrim up these steps. Virgil doesn't perform any absolving function, but it is curious that the classical poet yanks Pulls, hauls the pilgrim up the steps. These steps allegedly indicate your own volitional choice for redemption 
And yet Virgil is the one who pulls the pilgrim up. Why? Is it because the pilgrim is corporeal? And this may be true. Everyone else who comes up these steps is non-corporeal. Balacqua, Lapia, Manfred, that whole list I already did. They're not in their bodies. Is there some way that Dante's being in his body or the pilgrims being in his body forces a little help out of Virgil? Or, and this is another way to think of it, is it because Dante is a poet and that this classical poet has to help our poet up these very Christian steps that would link back to our discussions of classical and Christian imagery in previous episodes? Or, how do I say this? Is it because Dante hasn't gotten here honestly? Everybody else who gets here has gathered near the mouth of the Tiber River, has gotten in the angel's boat, has crossed the wide seas, has gotten to the mountain, has gotten out of the boat. Yeah, everybody else has done that. And Dante hasn't gotten here, honestly. He's come up that weird path from the bottom of hell up to the shores of this mountain, although not to the very bottom shores. If you remember, they have to climb down to get to the bottom shores. Is that the problem here, that Dante had to be hauled up into the mountain of purgatory from the center of hell, and he's still being hauled up here? Is this hauling up by Virgil equivalent to that ending bit of Inferno where they haul up that long trek out into the ultimate starlight? It is interesting that Dante gives Virgil so much of the responsibility, so much of the effort here in this passage as we approach this most holy door. I want to drop down in the passage and talk about the keys before we get to the letter P on the pilgrim's forehead. So this angel sitting there in those clothes, as we've already talked about that, it's a little difficult, and he pulls out two keys. And then at line 118, it says, one was made of gold and the other of silver. First with the white, that's the silver one, and then with the yellow, that's the gold one, he touched the door. And the phrase in the Florentine is something like, and so I I got what I wanted. I translated it as, so I found my contentment. So there's some kind of satisfaction feeling here. And you notice the emphasis is on feeling, on contentment, not on a theological abstraction, but on feeling it. And I think that's very important for Dante. The angel then goes on whenever one of these keys doesn't do the trick, doesn't turn inside of the lock. This walkway won't open up. So apparently both of them have to work, the gold and the silver one. And he says, one is more precious. And we take that to mean the gold one. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But the other, and we take this to mean the silver one, because it wouldn't be as precious, needs a lot more art and ingenuity before it'll unfasten the lock, because it's only this one that ultimately, and then this odd phrase, disentangles the knot. What is going on here? Well, there's a couple things that are going on here, and there's a long tradition behind what's going on here. Let's start with the bit about Peter. When Peter gives his great confession of faith to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, Jesus then gives the keys of the kingdom 
Uh, if you're a Catholic, he gives them to Peter. If you're a Protestant, he gives them to the church as a whole. Uh, that's theological quagmires that we're not going to touch. We're just going to say he gives them to Peter and leave it at that, because that's certainly what Dante would think. There are no, of course, actual keys being handed over in the Gospel of Matthew. Instead, these seem to be powers, and what the power is, is described in verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So it's a binding and a loosing capability, although here it doesn't seem as if the keys do any locking. We kind of presume that the angel relocks the door after someone gets through it, but but we don't actually see it happen here. Instead, we just see the loosing, to use the words in Matthew, and that may be important to the passage. This is a long-standing tradition that goes all the way back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 22, verse 22, in which we find out that there is a certain someone, Iliacum, who has, in fact, the keys to the house of David. And it's thought that in some way Jesus is presenting the keys to Peter is referencing this prophetic moment in Isaiah in which there's one guy that permits access to the throne, access to the house of David, and that that's what's going on here. But that still doesn't explain why one is gold and one is silver. And in fact, although they are gold and silver on the papal insignia even today, they are not so described in the Gospel of Matthew. What's up with the gold and the silver? In general commentary theory, the gold one is the perfection of God's forgiveness. That is, the one who God's forgives is forgiven, period. No other questions asked. The silver one, and this is what's intriguing, the one that is more, requires more art and understanding, more ingenuity and art and craft, that's the priest's ability to absolve. You have one key, the less valuable one, that is the priest's power standing in place of Peter to forgive sins. And notice how it's described. It takes a lot of art and ingenuity to do this. This seems to indicate that this key requires astute psychology. It really requires you to know the mind of the person. And then you can insert the key and If that key goes in, and then if the gold one goes in, God clearly approves of the action, and then the door opens. I love that, though, that it calls out for an astute understanding of human psychology to understand why you need to be forgiven. Now, I'm adding a lot of modern words here, human psychology and need to be forgiven. But he does say that this second key requires more skill and understanding. you got to practice to get this key to work. And what it does is it takes a knot and it untangles it. So the metaphor changes from a lock and a key to a knot. This is kind of beautiful. The idea that what is wrong with you, and you don't have to take this out to sin. You can if you want to, but you don't have to. What is wrong with you, what is flawed inside of you, is knotted. It's not that it's frayed. It's that it's tight. 
that it's wound up in itself. It's like, um, you know, remember the old days when we all used to wear gold chains? <laughs> Maybe I'm dating myself here. Remember when we, we all used to wear gold chains? And I, of course, had a whole set of gold chains. And they were always getting tangled up in my jewelry box. And it always took forever to unloose those things. Thin gold chains. Remember that? Well, that's kind of what I think about here. I think about the work it takes to undo a really tight knot. The notion that what is not right inside of you is a too tight knot that needs to be untied is really kind of beautiful. It's very human. It's not that there's uh, torn fabric in you, that there's loose ends, that there's frayed bits. It's not that, you know, this key is the one in case the lock is rusty, it can undo it, or if the lock sticks. No, it's all about untangling a knot. And we have to psychologize that knot. The text, I think, asks us to, since this is about forgiveness. And in so doing, it reveals something very beautiful about human nature. Something painful. I'm sure you know the knots in you. Well, maybe some of them. I don't even know all the knots in me, so why should I presume you know all the knots in you? I'm sure you know some of the knots inside of you, and I'm sure you know that there are some you just don't want to take apart. But there are others that it takes you a long time to pick apart. That's kind of beautiful and psychologically astute, even though this is a deeply theological passage about the keys that Peter got from Jesus that are now in the hands of this angel, and we should say hidden, hidden under his cloaks and only pulled out once someone has gotten up the three steps, even apparently if someone is hauled up those three steps. So let's go back to those P's traced on the forehead, the letter P. So this angel takes the tip of his sword, and you notice that this sword is not broken. This sword is whole. And the angel traces seven P's on Dante, the pilgrim's forehead, and then makes the claim, you've got to wash yourself off once you're inside purgatory, of these wounds. And this idea that what has happened here is a wounding. It's a physical mark of a wound. And we would have to say, of course, it's a physical mark of an internal wound. Let me just say that any commentary you read is going to tell you, oh, it's P for Pacata, for sins. And these are the seven deadly sins. And this is what's going to be forgiven on the terraces of purgatory ahead of us. And that is all true. But you know what? That does a terrible disservice to the poem. If you just look at this and look at the passage itself, you don't know that that P is peccata. Yes, later we'll find out that it surely has to do with sins. Right now, all we know is that the letter P is traced on the pilgrim's forehead. And all we really know is the two big words we know that start with P are peregrino, pilgrim, and Pedro, Peter. In this passage, we don't know necessarily that this is Pacata. In fact, we might think that this is some seven marks for Peter or seven marks of pilgrimage. Or there are other words in the medieval Florentine that we could assign for the letter P. And I think it's really important to let this sit here as weird. Yes, I know. Every critic jumps out and explains it for you. Oh, Pacata. But you know what? That word is in Latin. And we're reading a poem in the medieval vernacular Italian. 
So it's not so self-evident that we would understand the Latin word here. We might be searching around for a word in medieval Florentine like Peregrino or like Pedro, St. Peter. Leave it as strange for a moment. Leave it as difficult to figure out. We also have a couple other questions here, and that is the longstanding tradition in biblical literature of writing on the forehead. You should know there are two examples of this. There's examples uh, from the prophet Jeremiah who writes on certain people's foreheads in Jerusalem, and those people are saved from the coming destruction. A lot of critics point at that passage in Jeremiah as part of this. I don't know. Um, I don't know that this is saving you from any coming destruction because I don't see any apocalyptic destruction ahead of us. With one little exception up in the very top of purgatory. But I'm just going to say I don't see any big apocalypse happening to us. Just a minor symbolic one that's going to happen. <laughs> so I don't know about that. The other one is, of course, the Mark of the Beast, 666 from the Apocalypse of St. John, or as Protestants call it, the Book of Revelations, in which the people get this mark on their forehead that identifies them with the Antichrist. Um, that, again, seems a stretch because these are holy marks, surely, from an angel. These are not blasphemous marks. But we can say that there is a biblical tradition both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament of marking foreheads for purposes, and that's happening here. The big question, and this is a question that so many wrestle with, is whether everybody gets these seven Ps or only Dante. I think I probably come down on the side that only Dante gets these seven Ps. He's unique. He's in his flesh. These are the marks on his flesh. No one else would there be flesh to write in. Um, And I think that we're supposed to see this as a marker on him in his corporeality that is different from everyone else. Because furthermore, no one else in all of purgatory is going to have Ps on their forehead. So I think this must be unique to Dante. And one more thing. before we pass on from the marks on the forehead, you'll notice that there's no pain expressed here. These peas are drawn with the tip of a sword. Surely they hurt, especially in the body. And yet there seems to be absolutely no marker of pain. There is marker of internal turmoil in this passage, the knots, after all, that need to be disentangled. But this doesn't seem to hurt. And that seems as curious as the angel's robes made out of ashes. I think that there are all kinds of ways that Dante is setting, uh, the bad word would be traps, the good word would be puzzles or intellectual games in front of us, and he's kind of goading us on, why don't these pieces hurt? Why would the angel be dressed in sackcloth and ashes? What has the angel ever done? There's all kinds of mm, games, puzzlements, uh, interpretive traps. I use the word quagmire a lot in last episode's podcast. They're being set all around us. And it's very interesting that Purgatorio Canto 9 is so full of them. This the big entrance into Purgatory itself. Let's look at it right at the end of the passage. The angel says, I got these from Peter, we've talked about this, who told me, and here we come, to err in favor of opening up rather than keeping the thing closed. Do I have to point out to you, love moves the fence? The ethic is open it up. Don't close it down. If somebody comes up here and if somebody wants in, 
let him in. Now, he does then give a caveat, and the caveat is what's very interesting. He says to do this, open it up, if only a person should fall down at my feet. Now, because we are walking so slowly through Purgatorio, we can notice this. The angel says, I open up if somebody falls at my feet, right? Go back up to the top of the passage at line 107 that we're at the top of the passage for this episode. And look at what Virgil says. Virgil says, call out to him in all humility to undo the door's bolt. Virgil does not say, fall down on your feet. The next thing we see is that the pilgrim devoutly abases himself at the angel's holy feet. He strikes his chest three times. We take this as mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. It doesn't say that in the text, but this would be so self-evident in Dante's day to say, my sin, my sin, my great sin, and strike his chest, that that's probably what's going on there. And then I called out for mercy and asked to be let inside. All right, all that's great. The striking of the chest, the calling out for mercy, asked to be let inside, that last bit is what fulfills Virgil's command. But none of that is what the angel focuses on. The angel says, if a person falls in at my feet, I'm supposed to open the door. We notice this strange detail because we are walking so slowly. And admittedly, our walking slowly does a little bit of violence to the text because we're not seeing its scope. But at the same time, we're able to see things like this. Virgil apparently knows, uh, how do I say this, the what? That is what you have to do, get the door open. But Virgil doesn't know the how. The how is abase yourself at the angel's feet. And we guess strike your chest. We guess call out for mercy. We guess ask to be let inside. The angel doesn't say any of that. All the angel says is, I open it up for anybody who abases themselves, who shows humility. Virgil seems to know the what you got to get through that door. But Virgil doesn't seem to know the how. Dante actually does it right and knows what to do. That is, fall down on his knees in front of the angel, fall down at the angel's feet. And then more of the traditional grief and repentance moves, striking of the chest, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima, culpa. This whole bit that then follows the call out for mercy, which is very much like Inferno 1, miserere, which is the first word that Dante the Pilgrim speaks in the poem, and now we have a yet another call out for mercy now as we're about to enter purgatory, and then asks to be let inside, which is what Virgil said. It's all very intriguing that Virgil's direction is correct in terms of the overall arc, but is apparently not the key. The key is humility, something that, in fact, a classical poet— the greatest classical poet for Dante's books, the classical poet may in fact not know. All right, that's the passage. We've put a little irony in there. We put theology in there. We put the New Testament. We put a lot of stuff in this passage. Let's read it one more time. Purgatorio, Canto 9, lines 106 through 129. Even with my best intentions, my good leader pulled me up these three steps and said, call out to him in all humility to undo the door's bolt. I devoutly abased myself at the angel's holy feet. First, I struck my chest three times. Then I called out for mercy and asked to be let inside. The angel traced seven P's on my forehead with the tip of his sword and said, Make sure you wash yourself once you're inside of these wounds. 
ashes or dirt dug up dry would be the color of his clothes, he took out two keys from underneath them. One was made of gold and the other of silver. First with the white, then with the yellow, he touched the door so that I found my contentment. Whenever one of these keys doesn't do the trick, doesn't turn inside of the lock, this walkway won't open up, he said to us. One key is more precious, but the other needs a lot more art and ingenuity before it'll unfasten the lock because it's the only one that ultimately disentangles the knot. I got these from Peter, who told me to err in favor of opening up rather than keeping the thing closed, if only a person should fall down at my feet. This week, why don't you favor opening up rather than keeping something closed? Say yes instead of no. Otherwise, subscribe to this podcast and rate it and do all those things. You know the things that it needs to be kept afloat. There is so much more ahead. We're going to finish off this ninth canto in the next episode of the podcast. Seems like we've been here forever, but this is just one of the biggies. And let me tell you that the ending of Canto 9 is an ending that has befuddled scholars for generations. So we're just going to wade into yet one more quagmire before we meet the first of the purgating souls in Purgatorio Canto 10. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's keep walking. Let's keep walking.